0: and welcome to the nerdy apologist podcast. This week we will be airing the second session of the C3 conference that our ministry had the amazing privilege of hosting. This session included Paul Kopen who is answering the question is god a moral monster? Now, this is a question that I believe Christians and non-Christians struggle with, especially as they're reading through difficult passages in the Old Testament. So I hope that you enjoy the interview and enjoy the question and answer segment and are able to take something away that may help your faith. Thank you for listening.
1: Time to kind of increase the audience a little bit, Uh, and so (laughs) we're glad that you guys drove down. Um... And so I want to just welcome you. I want to say a prayer, and then we'll let our uh, Truth for Doubt team take it away. Lord, thanks so much for this opportunity uh, tonight to speak to this brother. And, and uh, I pray that you would help us to know you better through this and, and to know uh, how you revealed yourself to us uh, in your word tonight. And um, may our, our spiritual eyes and hearts be open. To your goodness and uh, and and change us from from being here just change uh, the way we think to be a little bit more like Jesus tonight and so I thank you for uh, thank you for Michael and Ethan and Katie and their work uh, in this area for us tonight Lord we'll and be with them as they facilitate our time together in Jesus name amen all right, let's go for Katie Wilson
2: Yay. Okay. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Katie Wilson, like you just said. And with me, I have Dr. Ethan Hundley. Hello. Hello. And uh, Michael Badger. Boo. No. Yay. We're so excited. Um, So this is our second night of Truth for Doubt Live. Um, Oh, I listened to the last podcast and I said, um, a lot. So I'm going to really try hard not to do that this time. Okay. Um oh, man okay This is part of a Christian our Christianity and culture conference for our church. Um so during this during this con- conference we hope to address relevant cultural issues through the lenses of Christian faith and biblical truth by interviewing different guests on um, culturally relevant topics. So we interviewed Hunter Baker last week and we are interviewing Paul Copen this week. Um The Truth Doubt team, we're going to record this for our podcast, which is called The Nerdy Apologist, and you should all check it out. It's on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so there's lots of other interviews and conversations that we have on there, and we don't usually have a live audience for our podcast, but we do tonight because of this conference, so there may be a little lag if you're listening between questions and answers, and that's why, because we have a live audience, and we are interviewing via Skype this time, so... Hopefully that will kind of answer any questions about that. So a little background on our Truth for Doubt ministry. Our goal is to offer resources to help Christians create pathways of conversations to unbelievers in order to share the gospel. And a big way we do this is through our podcast by discussing various topics and how we can use apologetics to defend our faith to unbelievers. We also have interviews with special guests to guide us, like tonight. Our special guest is Paul Copin, and he is a Christian theologian, analytic analytic philosopher, apologist, and author. He holds a Ph.D. in philosophy and is currently a professor at the Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's a Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics, and he has written several books. I'm just going to include a few. Um, He's written True for You, but Not for Me. That's Just Your Interpretation. How Do You Know You're Not Wrong? When God Goes to Starbucks, A Guide to Everyday Apologetics, and Is God a Moral Monster, which is going to kind of lead our discussion for tonight. But like i said he's written a lot more so you might want to check him out and at the end of the podcast i'll tell you how you can look up some of those things so michael and ethan are gonna take it away for us
0: well thank you again guys uh for coming out um, we're really excited to do this and paul uh thank you so much for uh being willing to come and talk with us about this man this really difficult topic um so when we were emailing back and forth, you said that you were going to be skyping in and I knew that from the beginning, but where you're skyping in from is probably one of the most interesting places that I could imagine anybody to be skyping in from. So can you tell us a little
3: bit about who you are and then also what you're doing, where you are right now? Sure. Uh, good to be with you all, by the way. Thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, I am, uh, normally in Florida when I'm teaching my university classes, but uh, I'm doing an intensive course this week uh, at um, a, the Ab Simpson Missionary Training Center in Salento, Colombia, South America. Uh, so uh, I'm here uh, for you know, through Friday and teaching an intensive course on. Uh, Christian apologetics, and so the people here are preparing for doing missionary work. So I'm giving them some uh, tools to help them to better articulate the Christian faith, to anticipate objections, to uh, deal with skepticism, and even how to respond to issues like dealing with doubt and so forth. So those are uh, it's a little bit about uh, me, what I'm what I'm doing here, uh, and uh, again, uh, very glad to be with you all. Awesome. Well, we're just going to jump right into
0: the thick of it, really. So uh, prepare yourself, sir, which I think you already are. But uh, so there are many such as, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens and so on, who they accuse Christians of kind of uh, ignoring what they would call the like the brutality of the Old Testament. Uh, and they will, set the, they will cite the treatment of like the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, in passages such as Deuteronomy 20, 16 through uh, 18 and 23, 3. Uh, and Dawkins even, you know, he said that, um, that they, the Israelites would massacre them with a xenophobic relish. Um, and so the question is really, is, is God in the Old Testament this, this bloodthirsty Deity who commands this ethnic cleansing of other people?
3: The quick answer is no and the And it's we ought to uh, consider too that this is the God whom Jesus is claiming to identify with and indeed to share in the identity of this God and uh, so we also ought to remember that it's not as though there is some sort of a vast dichotomy between the the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, as some people like Richard Dawkins uh, may suggest, and even uh, various theologians uh, in our own day uh, have have said. But, um, but when it comes to the question of the Canaanites, uh, how do we deal with that? And admittedly, uh, if you can address this fundamental question, I think all of the other ones uh, really look um, fairly, uh, you know, much more manageable in comparison. But but I think that uh, when we're dealing with the Canaanites, uh, we need to understand that this isn't a matter of ethnicity. Uh, you could put a Canaanite and an Israelite next to each other, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. They look the same, talk the same, dress the same, etc. They came from the come from the same gene pool, basically. So it's not ethnic, uh, but it is moral and spiritual and theological. Uh, The Canaanites are engaged in acts like infant sacrifice, um, incest, bestiality, ritual prostitution, acts that would be considered uh, criminal in any civilized society. Uh, And you also see a God who is waiting patiently uh, for over, you know, well, nearly 500 years. Uh, God tells Abraham uh, that in Genesis 15 that he's going to wait till the sin of the Amorites is filled up. So this is no precipitous rush to uh, judgment. This waits until the Canaanite sin has. here, if I may, you packed a lot of questions in there. Um, What about that command to utterly destroy? Uh, Well, as you look at this, this is what, you know, when you, on further examination, it ends up being uh, ancient Near Eastern trash talk. Uh, It's sort of like saying we totally destroyed those guys in basketball. Uh, We totally annihilated those guys in that football game. Uh, That was how that language worked in these ancient Near Eastern war texts and the uh, And the Bible is not an exception here. It uses that same sort of language So you can have lots of survivors uh, Even though the language is used utter destruction and there's even a question about how to interpret that term utter destruction because you can see that in at the end of Leviticus 27 for example um, a a servant uh, is considered haram that is you know, set apart uh, from ordinary use, but he's not killed. Uh, he is to serve in the temple um, An animal uh, in the same sort of fashion. A field can be haram uh, or, you know, again, it's not utter destruction, but it is set apart for priestly use. Uh, in fact, these cities that were haram cities, you know, these utter destruction cities in uh, in, in when Joshua was uh, was fighting, uh there are only three that were burned by fire uh there was more like disabling raids Uh, and you often have many survivors that are there uh even when saul is fighting and it says the author said the narrator says he that saul utterly destroyed the amalekites in this battle But later on in the same book, you see David fighting a large army, and 400 of these uh, Amalekites end up escaping. So something more is going on here, and uh, I think the uh, new atheists like Richard Dawkins and others haven't uh, looked more closely at these texts. They're just they're taking literally if we can indeed translate "utterly destroy" as you know that term "utterly destroy" as such they're not even looking at the other side of the ledger where you see a lot of survivors that uh, that are not being taken literally. Uh, so so again, that's the sort of thing that we need to be discussing here. And I think as you probe more deeply, you start to see some of these uh, arguments kind of peel off that don't have the kind of strength uh, that they used to have uh, when you first heard them perhaps in Sunday school.
4: Just as a follow-up to that, um, one, of, one of the other things, um, I guess... And it relates a lot to what you're saying there. Um, you know, we see one of the accusations we've heard as to why God may have commanded uh, uh, what unbelievers would consider to be genocide would be due to his jealousy. And so, um, you know, looking at like Exodus 34:14 says that his name is Jealous. And so I know, you know, some people would ask the question, um, why would a perfectly moral being have a characteristic like jealousy? Um and so, you know, what would your answer be to that and and you know how what is what's the proper understanding of the jealousy of God?
3: The appropriate response to the question would be, well, why would a morally upstanding husband uh, get jealous when a guy is flirting with his wife? Uh, the question answers itself. There is a legitimate jealousy. There is a marriage bond and a third party uh, invades or tries to invade, uh, as opposed to a, an immature, insecure jealousy that just uh, suspects ev- anything that, uh, that makes a person, uh, yeah, that threatens a person or something like that. That's not the kind of jealous God that we're talking about here. God has bound himself to the people of Israel, and anything that violates that is breaking a covenant that God has made with the people of Israel out of his own grace. God sets them apart and says, you will be my people, I will be your God, and that through you the nations of the earth will be blessed, and that if Israel aligns itself with another God, a, a deity, uh, that they compromise their own mission. They compromise their own their own identity. Uh, this is not something to be taken lightly. Uh, the world is at stake here. And so we need to remember that Israel needs to be faithful uh, to its mission in order to carry out the purposes that God has for the ends of the earth and engaging in covenant breaking, aligning themselves with other deities would violate that, and thus uh, Israel's mission uh, would be compromised.
0: Yeah, Uh, so another error that's often aimed at the moral character of God is, uh, it kind of comes from the seemingly nonsensical uh, laws that he gives the people, Uh, you know, such as, you know, if your son disobeys, then you should, you know, uh, take him out and stone him. Uh, So what is the answer to that, to those laws that seem, you know, almost barbaric to us today?
3: Yeah, when you look at some of these laws, I mean, there are a few things to keep in mind here, Uh, that uh, these are giving a maximum penalty. Uh, It doesn't mean that they're all going to be carried through. These are also to be seen as kind of guideposts for those who are judges and so forth. It doesn't mean that they are going to necessarily follow these laws to the letter, uh, but they are illustrating the seriousness of this kind of a violation. So when a son refuses to take responsibility for himself in a setting where the son in particular who has, who has responsibilities doesn't rise up and becomes a glutton and a drunkard and so forth and thus squanders his resources and fails to live up to his responsibility. Uh, this is a very serious thing uh, that the family structure meant uh, so much in the ancient world, a lot depended upon it economically, socially, uh, in terms of an honor-shame culture, and so forth. And so God speaks into this culture. A lot of things that may seem strange to us, that may seem backward to us. Uh, there are you know, we we rather than saying no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. By that stuff, that's just a, a completely different, the kind of where I live in. Well, that's what CS was called chronological snobbery. Uh, that we are better than those people then because they had certain taboos, certain uh, you know concerns about uh, you know just even things blood and semen and purification rituals and so forth. That was how they operated back then. Back then, and so God speaks into this situation in a way that they can understand it. Rather, you know, if God used modern laws uh i got have a modern sensibilities to speak to the israelites they wouldn't have understood this sort of a thing god steps into their situation meets them where they are and seeks to move them in a redemptive direction
0: yeah uh, a quick follow up to that too one of the questions that i've heard before as well is uh kind of in reference to the sacrificial system you know why did god uh Make it to where it had to be all these bloody sacrifices, and even all the way up to Jesus. You know, why did God require blood? Isn't that isn't that also like a barbaric thing? Isn't that close to uh, what a lot of the other like pagan civilizations and stuff were doing at the time? So, so basically, you know, what's up with all of the uh, the bloody sacrifices?
3: Yeah, the way that you put that last question uh, almost answers itself. You know that this was understood in pagan cultures, that God steps into this situation and speaks to the people in an ancient setting where, animal sacrifices mean something. Uh, it's not some sort of a meaningless ritual that is maybe relevant to us as moderns, but these ancient Near Eastern people could not have understood it. No, God steps into their situation, utilizes uh, you know, sacrifice and offering and so forth in a way that was understood back then. And so God, in doing so, is then preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, who is the final and ultimate sacrifice, who, whose shed blood, which you know, really is metaphorical for death, uh, the shedding of blood means death, through his death, um, he brings to an end that system, but that system actually points forward to it. It anticipates what the uh, what the sacrificial lamb, the the Passover lamb, Jesus the Messiah, uh, would come to accomplish. Uh, and so, so again, it it, it all ties together. Uh, And this is a way of ancient people stepping into their situation, also reminding them that this system isn't going to go on, but there's going to be a new covenant that comes that will bring an end to all of these things. And that will mean the forgiveness, not just of people in Israel, uh, but also bringing forgiveness to, uh, to people outside of the Jewish community. Uh, that uh, Jews and Gentiles alike can participate in the benefits that come through Jesus' own sacrifice. He, keep in mind that Jesus was not some sort of a uh, helpless, sacrificial victim. Jesus said, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down and I take it up again. John chapter 10, some helpless victim. Uh, it is an act of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, planned from eternity, where you have this agreed upon plan and two parties involved. It's not the Father, the Son, and Jesus, but it is the triune God and humanity uh, involved here, and that this and that this triune God is, is making way for reconciliation with humanity by God substituting himself for us. And so that substitution becomes the pathway through which we can enter into relationship with God, co- a covenant with God. Uh, to anyway, those are a few thoughts there. But feel free to pick up on any loose strands you've found there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to actually having these apologetic conversations with people, um, is it often hard to move from people just being, you know totally against this, what they would consider, you know, the, the immoral God to Jesus? Do you usually see resistance there? And if so, uh, is there, I guess, like a, maybe a, a method that you particularly take when you're actually having a conversation with somebody? Does that make sense at all?
3: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's helpful to uh, begin with Jesus and work your way back, um you know here you know, i think of the new testament scholar michael bird who is from australia and he talked about when he first read the gospels as an atheist he was just blown away by what jesus represented the the authority that he carried the the, the compassion that he showed the uh, the, the you know, again, the, the justice that he was pursuing uh, for those who were victims and so forth. So he was just so deeply moved and impressed by the Jesus he saw. And through this exposure, he kind of worked his way back to see, well, what led up to this? And, and I think that that is a, uh, an important starting point. Uh, people sometimes say, I'm going to read through the Bible. You know, that's, that's great. Uh, and I do that uh, year after year myself, but sometimes people can kind of get bogged down in, in some of those laws of Leviticus that they don't understand. That Jesus actually helps us to make sense of. So, so again, it's a it's a reading the, the Gospels, and going back, and then and, and kind of uh, you have a feedback. Around say, begin with Jesus and then work your way back, uh, because in Jesus you see the representation of who God is, and you see with clarity uh, what he is trying to do. Thanks. That's that's really good.
4: Um, something else that uh, we are sort of seeing, um, you know, many of the new atheists, uh, such as Dawkins or Harris, say is that the Bible endorses slavery um, looking at the Old Testament um, and then even looking at the New Testament uh, many would also say that Paul at the very least doesn't go against slavery um, what would what would your answer to someone's question of the Bible endorsing slavery in I guess the Old Testament versus the New Testament be?
3: Yeah. Well the term slavery is a loaded term and usually when when it's used, people have in mind the antebellum South. They think of the Civil War. They think of uh, many terrible things that happened to uh, black slaves on plantations and so forth. Uh, that's not at all what is being talked about in the you know in the book in the Law of Moses. Uh, for one thing, Israelites are indentured servants. That is, they work for a certain contract. Um, and when they're done fulfilling that contract, then they're free to go. They've paid off their debt. If you mistreat your servant, if you gouge out an eye or knock out a tooth, the servant gets to go free without any sort of a debt. Uh, it's not racially based. Now, the Israelites could have servants from other nations. Uh, sometimes this would come through war, and this is a much more humane thing to have people working as your servants rather than simply, you know, um, you know. You know, killing uh, them all. Um, so, so the Israel, so it's allowed that the Israelites can have uh, people who are from foreign nations uh, to serve uh, to serve them. But foreigners can actually rise in prominence in the, you know, in, in Israel, uh, they can rise to positions of uh, of of authority, of ownership, and so forth. Uh, so, so again, even there, you don't have any sort of a anything that comes close to what you see in the antebellum South. Uh, kidnapping that was punishable by death. If slaves ran away from other nations, they were, could find refuge in Israel that they could settle in any of Israel's cities. This is, a, again, a far cry from, say, the fugitive slave law, uh, where you had to return a, a runaway slave to his master uh, in the, again, in, uh, in the antebellum uh, South. Uh, what about the, and, and I would say that if the law of Moses were actually followed, by people who claim to be Bible believers uh, in the antebellum South, uh, there wouldn't have been any of those problems associated with slavery here in the United States. Um, Also, when it comes to the New Testament, again, this is under a Roman system rather than the, uh, the Hebrew system but, with regard to what uh, what is ha- taking place in the New Testament, as with the old, God was opposed to any kind of oppression, any kind of dehumanization, and Jesus himself in Luke chapter four, said that he came to uh, to to set prisoners free uh, to to bring relief. To those who are oppressed to preach good news to them and so forth so so if there's any sort of oppression if there's anything that is going to be dehumanizing jesus is against it just like god in the old testament was against it uh, when it comes to the uh, when it comes to um, how paul uh, treats uh, you know the issue of slavery well keep in mind too that uh, you know there was no democracy there. Um, to speak out against slavery meant uh, execution. Uh, you know, But what did Paul and others did within the New Testament setting was to actually affirm the equality of slaves, to treat slaves who are believers as family members uh, within the body of Christ. Paul says in Romans sixteen sixteen to greet one another with a holy kiss, and he does that in his other epistles. And in Romans 16, there are two slaves mentioned, Andronicus and Urbanus. Those are common slave names in the in, in the Roman world. And and you also have people who are wealth, well off, um, people who are, who, are, who are sponsoring these house churches like Aquila and Priscilla. They're to greet one another with a holy kiss, slave and those who are free. Uh, and they were to share a common meal together, which was a fa- like a family meal. It wasn't as though servants, you sit over there, uh, masters are gonna sit over here. No, it was a common common table that they shared. And again, this was a subversive act to challenge the slave system. Uh, so it was not some sort of a political overthrow, which would have been impossible, but actually it is through this uh, changing of a mindset, changing of hearts that would bring, uh, would eventually bring an end to slavery in Europe before it was later on uh, revived in the modern world. So so those are some things to keep in mind. But uh, But again, things like kidnapping, uh, treating humans as cargo, revelation, condemns those sorts of things uh, when Babylon practices that. Um, So there is an importance of cooperation, but also with with one who is a master. But Paul reminds masters that they have a master in heaven, and so they're going to be held accountable for their actions. So all of these things need to be kept in mind as we talk about slavery in the New Testament.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's been, it seems like I've been hearing more and more that some Christians who have more of, I guess, more of a liberal bent, maybe, um, have been trying to, I guess, unhitch the Old Testament God from the New Testament God. Uh, the Old Testament God is kind of an angry, grumpy old man. The New Testament God is Jesus and full of love, and they should be basically separated, kind of unhitched from one another. Uh, so how do you address that issue when you're speaking with, uh, with somebody who comes from that sort of theological perspective? Yeah.
3: Well, when you actually read the New Testament and you see passages mentioned like in Hebrews chapter 2 or Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 12, there is mentioned that if those on earth who received the law of Moses and every, and every infraction received a just penalty or recompense, how much more will, or, you know, how much more do we need to pay attention, uh, you know, you know, lest we ignore so great a salvation, um, you know, that that you know that just God is saying in the book of Hebrews that if you thought things were harsh when God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. That's nothing compared to those who turn away from the gospel and what will happen to them if they repudiate uh, the, the, the blood of the Son of God that's been shed for them and so forth. So you see, if anything, it's, it's far more sobering when you read the New Testament because it is so much, there is so much more at stake. Yes, you see love more fully displayed in the death of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, but you also see an intensification of wrath, which does flow from love, but, but that, that, that wrath that also comes from God when we don't pay attention to the, the sacrifice that God has given to us uh, for our salvation. Uh, and it's interesting, too, that uh, the, uh, the, the, the Jesus that many, you know, many will say is more kind of pacifistic and so on, well, just take a look at Revelation chapter two, where Jesus himself is speaking to the churches. And he, he talks about in, in chapter two, verses 20 to 23, he talks about these fault, the false teacher Jezebel. And she said that she, she, he cast her on a bed of sickness. And, uh, and he said he gave, gave her re- time to repent, but she refused. And he says, and he will come, he said, if they don't repent, he will come and make war. <laughs> he will come to kill. Um, those who are her followers. Also, also interestingly, in Jude chapter five—or sorry, Jude verse five—where um, you see the the best textual evidence says that it uses the word Jesus rather than Lord. So it's really getting specific here. It's it's reading about an Old Testament event, but putting Jesus in as the actor, and it says that uh, you know even though Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, destroyed those who continued in their unbelief. So this is, again, highlighting Jesus and his judging, his wrath, and so forth. Uh, That doesn't sound very pacifistic uh, to me here. Uh, And so when we look at even Paul striking Elymas blind uh, in By the Power of the Spirit in, in Acts 13, uh, when you see uh, Corinthians who are dying and falling asleep because they're misusing uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, when you see that uh, you know you, you see Ananias and Sapphira being struck down, these are the sorts of things that are carrying over into uh, the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is being quoted, uh, and a lot of these, a lot of times, the some passages are not really going to be dealt with fairly uh, by I think some of those who are who are making this sort of a divide. Um that, for example, Jesus, uh, in Matthew fifteen, the first you know six, seven verses, where he talks about th- those who, um, who you know speak against, who curse uh, their father and mother, who dishonor them, and don't live up to what they should as as children, um, that Jesus says that th- it is the commandment of God and the Word of God. That such a person should be put to death. This isn't just Moses saying it, as some of these more liberal theologians will say. That this is just Moses speaking, but not really God. No, this is Jesus saying that this is the word of the Lord that uh, that is being uh, spoken here. That the cap that capital punishment was indeed something that God stood behind in certain instances, and um, and so you you see more and more of those sorts of things, and you see, you know, and even Peter at Pentecost. Or sorry, in in um, in you know when he's talking in uh, in Acts three, he talks about this prophet who's to come that those who don't listen to him will be destroyed. So here Peter is referring back to the Old Testament, and saying, "Look, this is what was promised. If you disregard the coming of the Messiah, I could go on and on, give further illustrations, but I think." Uh, What we need to do is recover a greater continuity between the Old and New Testaments rather than many are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, what would you say to people who would maybe not necessarily deny that, but they would say, well, God's treatment of uh, human beings, uh, you know, uh, sending them to hell or, or allowing them to go to hell, or God's treatment of people in the Old Testament is just unfair? You know, God is being unfair. Uh, that punishment is is just too harsh. How would you answer that accusation?
3: Now, I want to make sure I've heard your question. Um, I only heard hell. Everything else was garbled. So if you could uh, just restate the question, I'd appreciate yeah, it.
0: That's not good. Uh, so how would you uh, answer the accusation that Jesus's treatment of people, you know, uh, judging them and uh, allowing them to go to hell or sending them to hell Uh, or God's treatment of people in the Old Testament uh, is just, it's harsh and it's unfair? How would you answer
3: that? Um, Well, I suppose um, harsh and unfair can be... um, You know, we, uh, it's interesting that so many people who consider Jesus to be a moral model. If you want to bring up somebody who has spiritual and moral authority, Jesus rises to the top time and time again. He's the one that everybody wants to get a piece of, everybody wants to identify with. But yet here, Jesus himself speaks about this kind of a uh separation from god in very severe terms now i would say that so so again jesus who is this most you know moral person we've encountered on the face of the earth the one who speaks with greatest moral and spiritual authority here he is saying these sorts of things well maybe we should Pause and uh, and consider maybe our own impressions need to be corrected here, Uh, um, if we have if we are wildly diverging from that. Uh, So so there is I I think it's helpful to keep in mind that God in as we talk about hell is one who honors the free choice of human beings. No one is sent to hell. Uh, People put themselves there. They cut themselves off from. The blessing and the presence uh, and, uh, and and the love of God. Uh, they, as C.S. Lewis said, in the end, there are two kinds of people: those who say to God, "Thy will be done," and those to whom God says, "Thy will be done." And as we see that uh, you know that no one you know, really what what keeps heaven or the new heavens and the new earth from being completely filled and hell from being empty. Well, it is the free choice of human beings that ultimately accounts for that, the resistance, the free choice that resists the initiating grace of God that commands all people everywhere to repent. So when we look at this as being harsh, well, God isn't going to condemn anybody who wants to be with him. Uh, God is going to, you know, God opens up that opportunity. It's people who... Cut themselves off from that, and when we when we think about the nature, you know, what is hell? I mean, some positions that are sort of put forward for that, but uh, but one could also argue that the uh, that those who you know refuse God's presence. Um, they, the rebellion continues. They just continue to resist God. It's not as though they're saying, oh, I'm really sorry for what I've done. I'm really, you know, I really wish I could be with God. Uh, no, the rebellion continues. The self-centeredness continues. Um, and it and it doesn't mean that this is a literal place of, you know, fire, because if you take it literally, well, flame and darkness would cancel each other out. I think it just talks about the, uh, and, and John Calvin and Martin Luther held that metaphorical view, by the way, uh, but it's simply talking about the Uh, the hopelessness of a life that is separated from god and so we can be like that you know you know we can ask about that prodigal son's older brother in luke 15. are we going to go into the party and celebrate with the one the lost person who has come home or are we going to stay outside and enter the party? But God isn't going to hold up the party, the celebration, just because there are people who don't want to come in. So those are a few things that I could say, but I don't know if you want to, again, pick up on any uh, any things that you'd want to press a little bit uh, further.
0: Sure, Jim. Yeah.
4: So just to <clears throat> to follow that up, and, and you mentioned this uh, a, a little while, uh, I, I think, in the question before that, but um, sort of uh, what... what in general, what advice would you have for, say, a a newer believer who may be reading uh, through the Bible and really wrestling through some of these questions uh, about sort of God in the Old Testament and uh, in some of these, uh, really just some of these moral um, uh, topics that we're asking about, you know, what's some general advice um, that you would have for someone? Uh, And I know that you mentioned sort of starting at Jesus and then working your way back. Um, But what else would you say?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, keep in mind too, that this is a very different world in which uh, God is speaking. Uh, The ancient Near Eastern world, it's not only removed from us by uh, several thousand years, uh, but it's also uh, something that is uh, very much foreign to just our own, uh, way of thinking today. And so we, uh, you know, I think need to probe to see, well, what is the significance of say the sacrifices or the kosher laws and so forth. Um, and also keeping in mind too, that, uh, that God got the attention of people in, in, in certain ways, uh, that God would often do things in a very, um, uh, you know, severe way to get his people's attention. Uh, that God is often acting uh, in this way uh, because his people aren't listening. Um, and and also we need to understand that God is one who is. Uh, Angry at injustice, that uh, that God's anger does not end because, or in spite of love, that God brings judgment with dehumanization when there is oppression, uh, when there is uh, treachery and betrayal and so forth. Um, That uh, we need to also, I think, ramp up our understanding of the holiness of God. And what and and the anger of God that actually uh, doesn't speak to something that is evil, but actually uh, that speaks to a God who is deeply concerned about injustice in the world. And when the you know, when when you read the Old Testament, you see how pronounced is God's concern for those who are oppressed. Uh, for the those who are most vulnerable, for the orphan and the widow, uh, and the foreigner who come into the land, that these are the ones whom God is looking out for, because He reminds the, the people that you too were once slaves in the land of Egypt. So again, keep I think keep in mind that God that when we look at the Old Testament, we are looking at not an ideal situation. Uh, the laws of Moses are not ideal often a certain dynamism to them, where there's a kind of a, uh, you know, things sometimes, you know, the laws actually shift or, uh, or, or adjust it as time goes along, uh, as you read the first uh, books of the, as you read the books of Moses, and you and and you see that it's not, you know, static or wooden uh, but god is speaking into a situation and is meeting people where they are and seeks to move them in a redemptive direction keep in mind what jesus said in matthew 19 8 that moses permitted certain things because of the hardness of human hearts and, and God speaks into a place for their fallen human structures, and He seeks to regulate and control. Even though these aren't the ideal uh, laws that are being put into place, uh, there is something to help the people to uh, move forward. And God worked within those fallen structures. And again, when there is a lot at stake, uh, say when it comes to Israel's faithfulness to the covenant, that the, the their identity. Um, and their mission is at stake. And so you can understand God being angry, Uh, but he's also very patient. He continues to send messengers so that Israel will repent and so forth. And Jonah himself knows that God is merciful and gracious and that's why he doesn't wanna go to Nineveh. So there is that underlying heartbeat of the love of God that is there, that God ultimately desires for human beings to be reconciled to him. Uh, and that this is open widely even beyond the nation of Israel to even uh, a group like the the people of Nineveh. So those are a few other things to perhaps keep in mind as well. Thank you. Yeah, that was
0: wonderful. All right, so we're going to uh, open up into a time of Q&A. Uh, so if you have any questions at all, don't be shy. There's a microphone uh, right there. Uh, so line up and uh, feel free to ask your questions. And while people are Uh, or person, is going over there to ask the question. Uh, We're going to start off with one that we got submitted. So um, it is, did the Old Testament endorse polygamy?
3: Well, there are two views on that. Um, There is the view that God is simply working within a polygamous situation and... uh, doesn't uh, abolish it, but he discourages it. Um, So, that's one way of looking at it. There's another way Richard Davidson uh, takes this view in his book called The Flame Yahweh, in which he sees that, uh, that polygamy is actually Eighteen, uh, where one is not to take a fellow, you know, like two Israelite sisters um, as uh, as 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 wives. Um, so there is an argument that can be made uh, both ways. And so, uh, so again, uh, you could take a look at my Moral Monster book, which also, you know, and or my Biblical Ethics book too, which looks at both of those views and presents them. And uh, you can kind of uh, assess for yourselves.
0: All right. Do we have any questions over here?
5: We're good. okay. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. I was actually uh, turned on to your book through um, Frank Turek through Cross-examined, who is awesome, great apologist. Um I've heard his answer to the question, "How can God send people to hell?" Uh, he handles that question fantastically. It's basically the same answer you provided this evening. Uh, but I always one thing I always wanted to ask Frank was, when you look at ephesians 1.11, um, it does seem to indicate that there, there is a, a choice of God to predestine us, right? To predestine those who believe uh, to salvation or not. So how do you reconcile the answer that you provided versus what Ephesians says, which just to kind of summarize, um, you know in him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works Everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So I'll take the question offline. Thanks Yeah,
3: okay um, Well, I, I think it's helpful to understand Predestination in general terms rather than in specific terms or individual terms that God chose this person or uh, Did choose? That person, or condemned that person. Romans nine, Jacob, I've loved; Esau, I've hated. Well, there in the context of Malachi, um, it's referring to nations rather than individuals. It's the nation of Edom not being chosen by God, and thus you know the language of hated is used, although. You know, those from Edom can find salvation, uh, as we see in uh, the the Idumeans in uh, at Pentecost in, in Acts chapter two. But but uh, you know when it says you know Jacob I have loved, that's referring to the nation of Israel. It's a group of people and the people whom he's chosen. Uh, many of them die in unbelief. Uh, so this is referring to the historical selection of. Israel over against other nations. But again, uh, salvation is not so much at issue here, um, but rather God's choosing, you know, for, uh, you know, choosing a nation to accomplish his historical purposes, which do indeed, of course, uh, include salvation. Uh, I think it's helpful to, when you look at that passage that talks about these vessels in Romans chapter 9, vessels that are destined for destruction, uh, these uh, vessels of wrath. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul is speaking about the nation of Israel, of ethnic Jews that are resistant to the gospel that are that you know that you know, that reflect was reflected in putting Jesus to death and so forth, but yet Paul, through his ministry, sees Jews coming to faith, you know, here and there, um, and so uh, so those no longer are vessels of wrath, destined for destruction. Because Paul uses that same language in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul talks about those vessels, you know, for ignoble purposes, you know, made of pottery or wood or whatever. And then the, the more noble uses of vessels in a household of gold and silver and so forth. But Paul says... If you're one of those ignoble vessels, one of those chamber pots or whatever in the household, Paul says, if a person cleanses himself from these things, he will become a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. So here we have Paul saying, yes, if, if you continue to resist God like the Israelites are doing, um, you know, and they don't submit to him, well, this is going to be the outcome. You'll be a vessel of wrath destined for destruction. But if you turn and cleanse yourself from these things... You don't. You you don't have to remain that way. You can become a vessel of honor, fit for the master's use. So I think it's helpful to think in general terms here. That yes, this is the general outcome for those who resist Jesus, who resist the gospel, who resist God's influence in their lives—vessels of wrath, fit for destruction. But then there are those who, even though they're fit for destruction, they're you know by nature children of wrath. Paul uses that language, but they can become vessels of honor. Fit for the master's use. If they turn to Jesus, they repent from their sins and so forth. So think in general terms. That this is the general outcome. What is the general outcome for those who are you know uh, you know called and chosen and predestined? Well, glorification. That's the ultimate goal. That that's what they're destined for. But again, uh, that is because they have responded to the initiating grace of God in Jesus Christ. They have not said no to him, but have said yes. And that that is the trajectory that their lives will follow as they continue faithfully in discipleship uh, after Jesus Christ.
0: All right. Do we have another question?
6: I had a question regarding one of the first questions you answered earlier um, about is God just a bloody sacrifice desiring God? And um, please correct me if I misunderstood your answer, but I, I thought you were saying that this was common among some of the pagan religions, and, and it was uh, understood by a lot of people in the Old Testament that sacrifices. Would be required, but did uh, what's your understanding of Genesis three when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and then God um, clothed them with, I guess, animal skin? I've I've heard that explained as that is like the first sacrifice pointing to to. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice, or one sacrifice that could foreshadow it, like that Jesus clothes us as well. So correct me if I misunderstood you, please, and if I have Genesis really confused, but would that be God introducing sacrifices in this kind of bloody system?
3: Yeah, good question. Uh, You are correct in understanding um, that God utilizes a sacrificial practice from the ancient world that would readily have been understood and and, and again it's kind of like many people also identify with uh, rituals of purification and so forth you know when you've got a dirty conscience you know, kind of like think of lady macbeth uh, in shakespeare's play where she's trying to wash her hands cleanse her hands to get that darn spot out and uh and so she is uh you know trying to re- Purify herself to remove the guilt from herself. Well, you have those sorts of purification rites that are also well known in the ancient world and are even practiced today. So, yes, that's a correct understanding. Now, when it comes to God, um, you know, giving an animal, you know, animal skins for Adam and Eve to, to clothe them, I suppose you could say that it is a picture of what is to come. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily. Initiating the sacrificial system, uh, but I, I do think it is a picture of of, 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 of an animal's death that um, a theological system.
0: Can you repeat that last answer really quickly? Sorry, you kind of froze a little bit.
3: Uh, oh, the last thing. Did you, did you hear the first part of yeah. my answer, or the just thing, the second
0: part? Yeah. Just the second part about the uh, injured. The last sentence, basically. yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that the um, the clothing, uh, the animal. Uh, skin that God puts on Adam and Eve. While this, you know, I would say this isn't initiating some sort of a sacrificial system I wouldn't want to read too much in. I know some people read more into it than I do. Um, I'm a bit more reserved about um, loading it with more freight than I think it can bear. Uh, But I would say that uh, at least we do have a picture of God's acting, that there is a death uh, that brings benefit to uh, human beings, and in this case, um, uh, removing shame, covering uh, them with uh, with this clothing. Uh, so, so there is a perhaps a partial picture, or something of a glimmer uh, that we see foreshadowed. But again, I wouldn't say that something is being instituted here necessarily.
0: All right. Did you have another question? Sorry. <laughs>
6: You want me to say, "What about Cain and Abel? Yeah. What about them?" Oh, yeah. So, what is uh, with, I guess, Abel sacrificing the first of his flock to God? Did he just have this idea, and why was that uh, accepted by God? Whereas Cain's was rejected,
3: right? Yeah, the uh, a couple of things are are suggested in the question. Um, one, did Cain or uh, you know did say Abel pick up on this sacrificial system maybe through the the skin um, solution that God um, used to provide clothing for Adam and Eve, um, uh, or you know or was it something else? And and again. Uh, we can speculate, perhaps, but uh, but I think what we should do here is note that Cain, um, who is uh, who works the soil, and um, and Abel, who manages or herds the flocks, uh, they're both giving from their own livelihood, and you do see those sorts of things. You know, you'll you'll have grain offerings in Leviticus, not just blood offerings, uh, and some people think, oh, that was you know Cain offered a blood sacrifice, and that was really what mattered. Uh, and, and uh, sorry, Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain didn't, and that's really what matters. No, I think what the issue is, and you see it repeated, that, uh, that Cain, he was hard-hearted. Um, God was not pleased with his sacrifice because his attitude was not right, and so God rebukes him and he says that sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. So, so the the attitude is what God is correcting, not the specific sacrifice, the type of sacrifice. Um, that is being that is being offered Cain uh, is offering an inferior sacrifice because of the attitude that he has um, not because of what it is per se but because it is simply what you know it comes from the, their livelihood and that they're offering that to God uh, but again Abel has the the right attitude and that's why it's the better sacrifice than that Cain's
0: Okay. In Judges chapter 11, 29 through 40, we get the account of Jathath and his rash oath that he makes that ends up uh, causing the death of his daughter. Uh, my question is, is why did God not
3: intervene in that rash oath that he had made, which caused the life of a, his innocent daughter to die? <clears throat> Well, we don't know why there wasn't uh, any sort of an intervention. Um, we do see, for example, Saul making a similar rash vow uh, when uh, you know he says that no one is going to eat until the Philistines have been defeated. And yet, uh, his son Jonathan um, dips his staff into uh, you know, some honey that he sees, and uh, his eyes brightened, and he strengthened, and so forth. And and when Saul said, hears about it and says that uh, Jonathan must surely be put to death, um, there are people who stand up for him and protect him. Mm-hmm. He brought a team garrison with his uh, with his armor bearer uh, when when Saul was not doing what he should have been doing, um, and so there are people who stood up for him, uh, and uh, and so Saul didn't carry out that rash vow. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, we're just not told why, uh, why God doesn't speak up. Uh, I think, you know, there are, uh, you know, sometimes forces like um, Jonathan's comrades uh, who stand up for him and other times uh, no one speaks up and uh, tragedy uh, takes place. Uh, and so that's, I think what we see going on with uh, with Jephthah's vow. Uh, there are other there are some scholars though, who would say that it wasn't so much a it wasn't a, a, a literal burnt, rather, that she would remain uh, unmarried, uh, you know, that she um, that you know, and again that's why the virginity um, uh, celebration was uh, was enacted um you know in in israel uh during that during that period of time but uh but again and it seems like for a limited period of time perhaps during the lifetime of uh jephthah's daughter so again there are there are a couple of different interpretations on that as well so uh but 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 most scholars do get the sacrificial um the, the burnt you know the, the literal um killing of uh, jephthah's daughter and again it is a rash vow a, a terrible thing that uh, should not have been done but again that was the days of the judges and I think it illustrates how that's how low things had sunk in the, in the days of, uh, in the days of the judges.
0: All right. Do we have another question at the mic or
3: Good evening. Thank you again for your time tonight. Um, when talking to excuse me, people about just the morality of God, one of the more basic questions I've seen is by what authority is God imposing His morality on us? I wondered if you could comment on that. <clears throat> well, authority's got to stop somewhere, and God has made human beings in His image. Uh, it's sort so of sort of like asking, well. Where does the moon get the authority to shine like it does, or where does it get the power to shine like it does? Well, the sun is what is making that happen. Uh, so, as um, as grand as the moon's light is, it comes from somewhere else, and the moon can only reflect something uh, that comes from something far greater. Uh, and in the same way, we make moral judgments. We uh, have a you know we have a conscience. We have free will. We have a moral conscience constitution and we you know and and that is a reflection of the image of god we've been made in the image of god and that there is no standard that is higher but but again will push against our ways will maybe even startle us um you know and uh, and that that is what happens when you've got a not just a cosmic authority but of course a good cosmic authority who challenges our own self-centeredness who challenges our own Uh, individualism and so forth Uh, so so what God what gives God the right well he is intrinsically good he is worship worthy it's not simply because God has power and because he created us that therefore he has uh, authority over us I mean that's true to some extent but ultimately it's because God is worship worthy God is worthy of our uh, adoration our followership our worship and uh, but if God were simply some sort of a uh, a, a cruel, you know, if, if our creator, I should say, were some sort of a cruel, uh, evil tyrant who is not worship worthy, then we ought not to worship that being. Um, uh, there must be some sort of a higher standard beyond that creator. Um, that, uh, that helps us to see that this, this evil creator of us, times we may not uh, understand uh, all that is going on behind the scenes.
0: All right. So uh, we'll wrap things up with this last question, and uh, I think uh, it's, it's quite the doozy. Uh, it is, what is your view of God controlling, allowing, or planning evil?
3: I I'm, I'm, I just heard evil, that was the last thing, and there are a few words in between in the sentence. Could you just repeat that question, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is, what is your view of God controlling, allowing, or planning evil?
3: Well, God is not the author of evil. Uh, we see that god created everything and it was good um, what brought evil into the world was the abuse of human or creaturely free choice we saw it uh, of course with the fall of uh, a heavenly creature we um, call and you know basically god creates a good world but human beings or satan himself they set their focus on non ultimate things like satan setting his focus on himself uh adam and eve setting their focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil i mean not evil in itself but uh but again they're, they 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 uh they're consumed by it attention is focused on that, that that becomes the uh the thing around which they orient their lives so so god creates a very good world but it's because creatures set their uh, affections, their attention, their focus on non-ultimate things, that this then becomes a corrupted choice. Um, so God is not the author of evil, it is creatures that are the are responsible for the origination of evil. Uh, but God is capable uh, of bringing about uh, Good from evil acts, for example, even in the crucifixion, uh, where something that was, you know, where, where human beings freely uh, put Jesus to death, to death. I mean, you know, you read in the early sermons of uh, uh, in Acts, you know, you, you, but God raised him from the dead. So God is able to use these actions uh, to bring out a worse uh, and redemptive outcome.
0: All right, Paul, thank you so much. We uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with us and, and answer all these questions. And uh, God bless what you're doing in South America and your ministry in general. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Great to be with you guys.
2: Um, And I second that. Thank you, Paul, for talking with us and for being patient. Um, We had some Skype trouble, so thank you very much. And if you want to um, check out his books, he has lots of resources um, out there for you. He has written several, co-authored several, and co-edited several. So you can also visit his website, which is called paulcopen.com. And so he would probably have a list of things. On there as well. If you want to learn more about Truth for Doubt, you can email us at truthfordoubt at gmail.com or visit our website truthfordoubt.com. And if you would like to um, support this ministry and um, other apo- apologetic resources, you can go to truthfordoubt.com/give. So thank you very much, Paul, and we will be back next week. So thank you.